Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, Graham Shaw. We'll be talking about the life of a career musician and get some insights about live shows and recording and working in the studio and much more. So stick around for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. Best known as the lead of the Sincere Serenaders, Graham Shaw has been a part of the Canadian music scene, well, since the 1960s. So thanks for joining me today, Graham. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you, man? Well, I'm doing just fine, and uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And I, I went through your whole catalog, and I must say, um, I was aware of you. But uh, when I went through your catalog and 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 some of the videos and stuff, it's really impressive. I must say, very, very cool. So noted. Thank you. And uh, if you don't know me, I would never say that because I don't blow smoke. So I wouldn't say that if I didn't mean it. It was uh, super cool. And uh, it's interesting because when I watch some of your videos and sort of go through your stuff, I, I was wondering about your early interest like did you have a lot of formal training in in music or how did you get started with that no piano lessons the the perfunctory two and a half three years was it yeah um which i i kind of enjoyed not really but uh, listening yeah. to music i guess was my big education well uh, a lot of music in the family so yeah well they actually played my parents played in the, my mom played my dad played in a band during the depression family band hmm. the his family five bucks a night wow. uh violin saxophone <laughs> piano yeah. and uh, grandma shaw french canadian singing and, uh, so you know yeah and you just sort of grow up with it so you just kind of expected to do it but a lot of people try and they can't do it and it i've often said like musicians can make music out of anything because they're so musical and and that was certainly my impression with you. I mean, you're playing just about every. You play piano, guitar. Even in one video, you pull out a trumpet or is that a cornet or a trumpet you were playing? It's cornet. Yeah, and you just whip that out. Part of the pawn shop, ten bucks. Yeah. There you go, and you played it. And you and you were wailing. Then you do the blues harp, like a pretty cool man. I was like, okay, this is a true musician who could just make music out of anything. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, so, uh, I, I'm pretty horrible at flute. If that's any comfort. <laughs> Well, the harp, like like you played the blues harp too, and I, I do I have to do it for my one of my John Fogerty shows, and I just suck and blow. I don't know, I'm I'm terrible at it, right? So anybody who knows anything about it wouldn't be overly impressed. Work, work for Bob Dylan, be a good cheer. Yes, there you go. <laughs> That's right. So I it worked, but you, I saw you playing it too, and it sounded good. Actually, you did a, a good job of it. Yeah, well, there's a lot better people, but I get by, and I, all those uh, banjo. Well, piano, guitar, harmonica, I have played uh, professionally in sessions. So, you know, I'm all the way up to crummy. I'm up to adequate, I'd say, yeah. <laughs> but anyways, my, my overriding point was that somebody who's musical, you just make music out of everything. And, and that came across really well. So I was I was really impressed with that. And then uh, I was wondering, you're another musician from uh, Winnipeg, but you were actually born in Calgary and then you moved around a bit. So where do you actually say you're from when people ask you? I don't ask. I don't say really. Although I think now I'd be, I'd consider myself a Winnipegger, if you had to say anything. Uh, yeah. Funny when I was on tour, I was Regina's own Graham Shaw, Winnipeg's own Graham Shaw, Montreal's own Graham Shaw. Yeah. Uh, Victoria never claimed me, uh, but uh, Calgary, I was Calgary's Graham Shaw. That's where I was born. So, uh, but uh, if I had to say I was from somewhere, I think you know I, I made my bones in Winnipeg. So, and I, I think I'm fondest of Winnipeg, although it's a great country. I love all the places in it. Well, yeah, and you you went back and forth across the country a few times, from what I understand. But um, so you were right in that scene, like the the Winnipeg scene when it was all hot and happening, right? With the yeah, with the Burton and Randy and them, and I guess they were a little bit older than you, but you were right in the in the middle of that, and you actually played with the Devrons, right? Yes, I did. Uh, after after Bert uh, joined the Guess Who, I think I was maybe then it was another gentleman named Wayne Arnold after me in the Devrons, and then uh, Wayne quit, so we're like uh, the Devrons V three point two or something like that. I think we were the last uh, last iteration of the Devrons is the one that I was in, but uh, it was slightly after the Guess Who. I would say perhaps around seventy five, seventy six, Winnipeg really started. Uh, cooking. I think also uh, the legal age of drinking went down to 18 right around there. Right. And uh, 
all of a sudden a very flourishing bar scene. Before it was just community clubs, which were like local skating rinks because they have a little building in it and the bands that played. That's where Burton came up through. Well, that's right. Yeah. My my friend Marty Kramer, he talked about that. Oh, Kramer. Yeah. I know. Kramer managed the Deverons during my iteration of it. I know yeah. Marty well. Yeah. I've known Marty for years. Even, even, I got rear-ended in... Uh, in Winnipeg, uh, what, 77, and Kramer was driving the ambulance. <laughs> that's right. He bought an old ambulance or something, didn't he? Or was he... No, he was driving professional oh, oh, ambulance. That's right, yeah. Oh, he has one. I was a million jukeboxes. <laughs> well, that's funny because, no, but, but uh, Marty said that they put on like church dance hall, like they would put dances on at church halls and stuff too, right? Yep. He, he did all kinds of that stuff. The scene uh, and the uh, economic uh, structure there under changed a great deal once the bars opened up to the 18-year-olds and and people were actually making a fair living back then, you know, four or five hundred dollars a week, maybe, which is, you know, we'll get a musician by. Yeah, that's and, respectable. Uh, yeah. Yes, it was a lot of fun. I, there were so many great bands. We were working, we were pretty popular, so we were working every week. So I didn't get to see a lot of them. Uh, so I missed a lot of the fun there just because we were working. Yeah, that's true. That's a, that's a common story. I've, I I always try to get out and see the other bands as much as I can, just at least to have that image in my mind. So at least I can say I saw them once or twice or three times. Yeah, well, I think I saw all our lads uh, once or twice, but it was rare and I, I missed a lot of the fun. Yeah. Uh, one of the good things about a good Winnipeg band is you go see them uh, three or four times a week and uh, every night was great. Nothing like live music, got to say it. Yeah, for sure. And there was a big community of players there because lots of guys came out of that you know sort of scene right yeah, yeah i'm in touch with a fair amount of them on facebook now it's quite enjoyable oh, okay. it's kind of like old folks home we tell a lot of stories well i i did a couple tours with marty and and i interviewed him too so he talks about the winnipeg thing he goes on and on about it because that's his what were you doing on tour with marty well i i played guitar for some legend shows because i have my own band oh, in vancouver good, man. So you're, you're a player. oh yeah i've been making a living for 40 years ever since the early 80s so well, don't, yeah, you were uh, kind of talking a little overly modestly about yourself. Yeah, well, you know, you've been living doing it. You're a player, but yeah, no, I've been I've been making a living, and and I just rent myself out. I rented myself out to some of the legend shows because that's what Marty got into with Less Vote. He was managing Roy Orbison, then Orbison died, and he got into the um, tributes and stuff, and started making some cash there. Right? Yeah. So, so for you, what was your defining moment? Like, did you always want to be a musician? Was that just your thing? Or did you have to kind of decide? I never really thought about it until, well, I never really pulled the trigger until I was uh, I was working on the CPR. I was a gang foreman. Oh. And then uh, pretty well up, upwardly mobile. I was about 21 years old and uh, doing very well on the railroad. And then I just quit uh, to join a band. I was making, wow, back in those days, a whole lot of money, probably maybe $20,000 a year or something <laughs> like that, which in... Mm -hmm. 1968 and 60 now is pretty good money. It's good cash, yeah. But uh, I quit to join a band, and uh, that was it. I, you know, had to drive cab uh, for a little bit, and uh, sometimes, and uh, yeah. I worked in an art gallery for a while. Oh, but, neat. Uh, that was it. I was in a band, and then yeah. you know the band started uh, getting better and started getting more popular, and then. Uh, as would happen, I, I got hired for uh, some television writing and stuff just because I, I was a name, you know, a public name, and then uh, some jingle writing. And so I had my finger in a lot of pies at that point. But, you know, the writing, and then oh, mostly we were all covered bands, but then I started writing my own tunes, kind of sneaking it into the lineup, <laughs> you know, into the repertoire. So it all just kept kind of growing. It all seemed to have its own kind of. Uh, its own kind of force that uh, just kept uh, growing by itself. Good for you for doing that because a lot of club bands, they went out and played the clubs, but they just played cover tunes. And I, I did that to a certain extent. I recorded some music, but so, uh, you know, and that's what happened. A lot of club bands, they just played cover tunes all the time and never got beyond the clubs. And you were able to sort of go out of the clubs because we, we were counting one time, I was talking to a friend of mine, how many of the club bands in Vancouver actually went on to record music and become a recording act. And it wasn't that many. There were some, but very few. They got stuck in the clubs, right? Making money and, and that's well, they... stuck in the clubs, you know. A lot of us old guys, we you know, I really enjoyed a hell out of playing more six 
you know, six day weeks, you know, if, if the money was there, you know, the work was there, but it's not. Well, yeah, that's not even counting COVID-19, right? Yeah, right. No, I enjoyed it to a certain extent. I mean, in the, I played all through the mid seventies and late in all through the eighties and stuff. The six nighters kind of got to me after a little while, especially the out of town ones, but, um, you oh, sure yeah. well, out of town is, yeah. uh, it could be horrifying. Yeah, but you sure polished up the band, man. Like you sure did get good because it's like six days of playing, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you, you get yeah. good. Yeah, and it's one thing that the bands don't have nowadays. Like if you were going to put a band out on a circuit nowadays, where where would you put them? Like what would they do? Well, I had no clue. Yeah, there. I don't think anybody. You're the wrong guy, man. Well, I think there is. There isn't one. Is what I think the answer is, right? Um, which is too bad. So, and then you. So you had the serenaders. I was reading your, when I was doing the research for this, you had the serenaders, but then you did the sincere serenaders in 77. You put that together? Oh, I had uh, about four versions of the sincere serenaders. It's, okay. it's a name uh, I, I stole from Walt Kelly, the guy who did the Pogo cartoon scripts, which I first read, started reading when I was, I think, about 11. It's uh, kind of a precursor to G.B. Trudeau, a political uh, comic strip writer. And uh, uh Albert and Pogo had a band. They were called the Original Sincere Serenaders. And oh. So I just stole them. I liked it. Oh, cool. And I started probably about uh, 67 doing it with some friends. And then about 68, 69, hired some real pros. And we started doing it. And uh, then uh, that ended. And then uh, I think version 2.2 2 was the one that uh, you see in the first record. And mm. by that time, we, we were playing every week and getting getting good yeah well the video i saw is smoking really really good yeah that's there's another aspect of the good times then was the cbc had enough money to actually invest in and support uh, local acts so yeah. they had a tv show every week that the local bands could play on yeah which is great that was yeah. pretty exciting in itself yeah. too and also helped us kind of hone our whatever professionalism we could muster yeah absolutely so the interesting thing when I was reading this, um, the the record deal you got with Capital Records, you finally you, you signed with Capital, I guess, in the late seventies, right? Seventy seven. Oh, 79, I think seventy eight, seventy nine. Okay, and then so that it says here that you that you were signed as a solo artist, and that they were encouraging you to use studio guys, but the band was the band, right? Yeah, the band was a band. I couldn't I uh, couldn't dump them. Yeah, I was taken up to the seventh floor of Capital Records, the Round Building. And they sat me down, and uh, Bobby Colombi was actually my uh, A&R guy. And where was that? In uh, the Capitol Records building in Los Angeles. Yeah, oh, yeah, he went to L.A., yeah, okay. And uh, they they did their best to convince me to, to dump the band, but I couldn't do it. And uh, I think we, my players are good at their players, as far as I'm concerned, right? So anyways, that's yeah. the way that turned out. Yeah. Uh, but the management, uh, Finkelstein Fiedler, they managed uh, – Bruce Coburn, Dan Hill, Murray McLaughlin, Rough Trade, they uh, signed me. They wouldn't sign the band, and Norwood Capital signed the band. They just figured I was, you know. Yeah, that's interesting, because because in the video, like, your drummers are smoking hot. The bass player's oh, great. Yeah, yeah, they're all great. <laughs> all of them are great, man. Yeah, I know. I thought. They weren't there entirely by chance, no. So so that's why I was wondering, was there like, some tension in the band? Like, was it? I never even mentioned it to the band until maybe 20 years after. Oh, okay. Well, good. No reason to mention that. No, no. I, I'm sure, you know, they're, they're all really smart people. They you know when I just got signed, that uh, it, it mm. kind of did not make them feel as essential as they actually were. But then you're writing the tunes and you're fronting the band. So I guess they're, they're going yeah, uh, to. Uh, I think the tunes were, I, I would call myself like, I didn't act like a real rock star, nor did I look like a real rock star, but uh, mm. I think they thought the tunes were worth something. I did also sign a, a publishing deal with uh, the company that uh, Michael Jackson later bought, which gave me a, a real nice advance. Yeah, nice. And so that's you know that's the aspect of the songwriting thing, which is I, I think probably my long suit so far as entertainment goes. Well, fair enough. I mean, that's that's the residuals that you get, other than just playing gigs. Like a lot of musicians, I, I read Pete Townsend's book, and he said that Endwhistle called him up and said, "I'm I'm broke. I need some money. We need to go and tour." <laughs> So he, he said, okay, that's sure. That, yeah. That's the golden goose for sure. Writing Cause you know, the guys Townsend was making tons of money. He said, I didn't have to do anything, but uh, well, good for you that you were able to do that. And then, so then you were in LA, you went down there and, and it's funny. Cause I see Danny Cassavant played guitar for you. 
Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I know Excellent. him. So good, Buzz. Yeah, good. I know him in Vancouver because he came out here and played in the Bobcats for years, right? With uh, Yeah, I know uh, the, the uh, Sunday service. Yeah, he did that. Uh, so you know Bob White as well. Right? I did, yeah. He passed away probably two years ago, I think now, right? Two or three. I was yeah. out there for the, uh, we, we kind of had a, a wake or a memorial for him at the, uh, okay. what's the name of that bar? Down English Bay, whatever it's called. Well, there's the Sylvia Hotel. There's No, um, just up from the Sylvia. That's where I stay when I'm in Vegas. Where you're not talking about the Fairview. No, no, I'll think of it later. Yeah, okay. Or I won't. Doesn't yeah. matter. But anyways, um, so while well, we were on double bill with Bobcats quite a few times and they played around Vancouver lots and stuff. So, so I knew Danny there and I, I haven't talked to him for a while, but, uh, but yeah, they did real well out here, but I didn't realize he was in your band because the first video I saw, he had a different guitar player. He was smoking too. He was really good. Yeah, that's Paul O'Neill. Yeah. He's, uh, he, he came on for the second record, which we did for True North Records, which was, uh, run by our management. Capital wanted to keep us, but, uh. Uh, they, as our managers, said we should go with you North. So we Interesting. Yeah, because I wondered about that. So so here you are. You're a young guy. You're down in L.A. You got your players down there. You got a, a record that you record. You get a decent hit song out of it with Can I Come Near, right? And so was there any talk about moving down there or, or sort of tackling the U.S. market? Uh, it was released in uh, the United States. One of the things about it was it was four minutes and uh, 40 seconds. Okay. And... Uh, that was not good for uh, commercial radio. That's yeah. way too long. Oh yeah. I think they even when they pressed it, they put it as being four minutes long. Yeah. Because I think all the records then were you know topping out or maybe three thirty or something like that. So it was it was too long for the four minutes. What we heard uh, it was released in a lot of places. Didn't get a whole lot of uh, attention in the United States. As so matter of fact, though we got dumped. Uh, I think we and uh, who else? Uh, Another Canadian act got dumped after after their first uh, Lisa Del Bello. Okay, and so that's why uh, Capital Canada tried to sign me. Yeah, and uh, tried very hard, as a matter of fact. And it was I like that record company, but management said no, come to us at True North Records. So I kind of had to do that. Okay, yeah, so was, that was that, that was that story. Yeah, I was curious about that because some some guys think, okay, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to the states. I'm going to make it there. You know, like Andy Kim, Paul. Um, uh, Paul Anka, those guys, you know, they go to the States yeah. and they're going to make their... No, their... I never really thought of doing that. Never did. Um, but of course, you know, look, I was never overly called, enamored with being a star as yeah. such, you know. Right. I, I wouldn't say I had really had the drive to want to be uh, top of the topper most or whatever it is, you know. I, I, the record did what it did. Yeah. I, I made a record, which I think is pretty good. I thought the demos were better than the record we ended up making. Hmm. But, uh, you know, did it. And yeah. Did it. Well, it's done. yeah, it was, it was great too. I just wonder, I guess my question is, you know, when you're down there, you're thinking, okay, this is it. Like, this is what we wanted. Well, we're in LA. LA you know. After three months in LA, I just wanted to go home. Okay. Well, fair enough. You ever been to the, you've been to the PNE. How long have you lived in Vancouver? Well, since 1970. There you go. You've yeah. been to the PNE? Oh, many times. Played there many times. Yeah. So. Okay. You know, you go there and there's all the rides and all the shit, but after yeah. about three hours, all you hear is the diesels grinding. Right? Yeah. All you hear is the noise. That's what I felt anyways. It's just yeah. like going to the X. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, and, it's, that's enough of that. and it's pretty much the same every year too. You go back, it's the same. Yeah. Same yeah. Same stuff. yeah. That's yeah. like I go, I go to, I used to go to the Red River Exhibition in Winnipeg, of course. Yeah. I went to the, the uh, what do they call it, Exhibition, uh, whatever they call it here in Toronto. The and, CNE. Uh, just, three hours is enough, man. So yeah. I was uh, happy to go home. Oh, cool. Well, good for you. I mean, I just you're thinking you're you're a young guy, get stars in your eyes, and you're in LA. But you know, it's not it's not all the glam, right? You're down there. Like, no. Uh, well, it was it was pretty glamorous for me. They treated me great. Look at penthouse at the High yeah. Continental. Nice. Cadillac to drive around with <laughs> all my meals, everything. You know, eating at yeah. Mosul and Frank's and Mister yeah. Chow's and stuff. Yeah. It was pretty good, but. Yeah, very cool. I didn't. It didn't feel very not my world, man. Yeah, fair enough. That's that's a good point. I I, I would probably be with you on that because it's if you're not starstruck and you're not trying to be a star, it's, you're just not drawn to that kind of situation. I guess I wasn't. You know. So let me ask you about. I wouldn't want to be a millionaire, but well, yeah, anyways, there you go. I, I, I got so lucky with the musical career I did with all television and stuff. Sang a lot of jingles. The musicians' union is very good, as is the actor union. So I'm just fine. Yeah, no, right. that's that's good to hear. Yeah, lucky guy, lucky guy. 
Well, and I was going to ask you about Can I Come Near because it's, uh, it's very British sounding almost, you know, with the harmonies. Well, yeah, the Beatles were my influence as, as they were just about everybody else in my particular age echelon. So. And the smooth vocals, like the uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers kind of smooth voice <laughs> in the harmonies. I never thought of that. This is the first I've ever heard of that. It's funny. But it's just, I, I just noticed it when I was listening to it closely. I've heard it, of course, heard the song lots of times, but I was yeah, listening to it. Some people complain about they play it too much still. So. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, 40 years ago, man. <laughs> yeah, so what? <laughs> no, it's good. That's, uh, but it's, it, yeah, it's just that you could hear the British influence with the harmonies and the nice vocals and the very melodic, of course. So uh, I just wondered what your influence was, but. Uh, oh, a lot of, well, my first influence was, uh, you know, classical music. Then uh, Gershwin, then the Be the Beatles certainly got my attention, as everybody else my age. So yeah. uh, a lot of different influences in there for sure. Yeah, I know it's good. You can hear them, and and then so you were, as I said, you were riding high, and then you won a Juno for most promising male vocalist. That was nineteen eighty one, right? Right. So that must have felt good. Uh, yeah, well, better than losing. Better well, get. It. I felt better than Brian Adams that night. <laughs> but uh, and I forget who else was in there. Oh, I think Long John Baldry was in there. Oh wow! Too. I, yeah. yeah, shit. You know, I should apologize all around. Yeah, it's okay. Um, um, yeah, that was fun. That was good. We yeah. had a good time. I had dinner with Joni Mitchell and, and oh, nice. her manager and me and my managers. That was nice. Got a big Joni fan, aren't I? Oh yeah. Well. Was, so it was, yeah, that was a lot of fun. You know, the you band know. got to come out. They flew the band out and that. And oh, cool. We had a good night. Yeah. Had a lot of fun. So then... We, me and the band always did have a lot of fun. That's a good thing. It was not... We never had what you would call, you know, uh, band conflict or stuff like yeah. that. We all got along. We're all still very, very close friends. Oh, good. And, uh, a lot of laughs, a lot of happy memories. Well, your drummer is a total card, man. He was just hilarious. Oh, up he's and a down. Best. Great. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's on... Uh, Penticton now. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah, everybody's still happy. Everybody's doing well. Oh, good. So he lives in Penticton. Yeah, I go up there every year for my holidays. That's where I we play up there a lot. We're playing there in June, actually, at the Peach City Beach Cruise. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay, we'll put our shout for Gord Oslin. That's his name. Gord Oslin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, excellent. No, I was really impressed. So so I was going to ask you then, so when you were down in LA and then you recorded the album, then the Capitol deal went away and you signed with True North Records. So was that more of a Canadian deal? Was that... To, yeah, no, the Canadian distributor. Yeah. I don't even know if they bothered distributing it beyond the border. Don't know. So that would have brought you back to uh, the Canadian market kind of exclusively, right? Uh, that's what I think, as much as I followed that stuff. And that probably wasn't the best thing as far as career move, right? Well, it wasn't in my hands. I had management, so yeah. they were the ones supposed to be guiding the career, right? Because trying to break in the States, you got to have kind of a U.S. record deal from what Oh, yeah, telling me, right? Yeah, if they don't hear it, they're not going to love it, are they? Well, that's what I was wondering too about. You know, I always ask the retro music makers, and many of them I've spoken to about their relationship with the record companies. And of course, you know, you're chasing singles, and they want another hit, and they go, "Well, that, that we really like." You know, can it come near? Can you can you give us some more of like that or something? Right? I didn't get a whole lot of hands on. No, from the record companies. Uh, Dean Cameron was the uh, A and R head. A and R ended up being the president of Capitol. Okay. He and I were pretty tight. We talk about this and we talk about that. But uh, um, I was pretty well left on my own to uh, just write what I felt like writing, and uh, so I didn't get a whole lot of input in that regard. I, mm. I think the last I really uh, Capitol was uh, working on me. They asked me to come down to Los Angeles for a makeover. Hmm. and uh, being I already refused to f fire the band, and then I said, no, I don't want to go down to Los Angeles for a makeover. Uh, I didn't hear much from them after that, so I think at that point they were starting to realize that the, the talent was just product, and uh, yeah. you know, if I didn't want to behave as a, a corporate shill, in that regard, well, they didn't have much interest in working with me because I wasn't into immediate what you'd call star quality. Like, I'm not like... Well, I guess, yeah, that, I mean, that's a good point, right? They want to they want to market you, so they want to do the makeover, they want to do the songs, they want to manufacture something they can market. And you're like, you know, I'm going to play some music here. I'm writing some songs. and I think that's, you know, without making myself sound like some kind of hero, yeah. uh, chaotic, chaotic. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't really, I didn't want to makeover. I didn't want hair to. Yeah. Now, there's certain guys like uh, David Bowie loves makeovers. He do it all the time. Yeah, there you go. And, uh if if you really enjoy that kind of shit, 
I just don't. I just... Well, the, the one thing I've sensed over the years and the people I've talked to, there was always a tension between the marketing side and the music side in, in some measure. I mean, you're not chasing, if you're not chasing hit singles or sort of pablum to the people and you're going to put this almost fake or manufactured image, let's say out front, if you're not into that whole aspect of it, then the record company is going to be like, you know, that we need to find somebody who's willing to do that. We'll get somebody to write the song. I think they like the costumes. Uh, you know, uh, videos too. I never had, we never made any videos. Mm. The, uh, the uh, record company's never coughed up for any videos. That might tell you something as well. Right. You know, is this marketable or is this not marketable? Just, see, a lot of bands, uh, when I was making music, had a lot of haircuts, man. There you a go. A lot of big hair. And uh, I don't know. That's whatever, you know, yeah, whatever it is. It is what it is, yeah. The other thing I was wondering about too is how did they categorize your music? Because when I listened to it, I went through your whole catalog and listened to a few hours of what I could listen to. And it's wow, boy, got, that's a God bless you, son. Well, I'm not going to waste your time. You know, I want to listen to it. I want to have something to, to ask you. But I mean, you, you do everything from pop to rock. It's a bit jazzy. You got some prog stuff in there, some synth lines. You got the Little River Band type harmonies in some spots. It's just a wide mix of cool stuff yeah well it's, i like all kinds of music i, I gotta say all you know if it's any good yeah. but you know got lucky that one tune from the uh the second album got used as the uh, city tv news theme pentatus uh, is that how you pronounce pentatus, it right? pentatus and, uh, there you go yeah yeah and that's when i sucked trumpet in and uh um, yeah so that made me money that's great they're playing it every yeah. night morning noon and night that's There's great. all these great trumpet players in Toronto having to listen to me <laughs> <laughs> playing. Those poor bastards. I really got to apologize, Mo. Or yeah, uh, Guido. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I didn't right. mean to play the trumpet, believe me. Yeah. No, it was, it was good, though. You played your, you played your part and did your thing. Yeah, I did. Yeah, tooted away. Well, that was the, the one where you do the fast piano bit. Yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah. That's, that's cool, yeah. No, well, that's good. And then, so, so your second album comes out and the record company, they want some singles, of course, and there was no singles on that album. Well, they released, uh, I can't say no to you, uh, which got a whole lot of play. I think I got a, I got a, a K-Pack award for it yeah. or uh, whatever, Pro-Can or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but nobody knew it was uh, us. It didn't, see, it didn't sound like Can I Come Here. They thought it was some fake Beatle band or something like that. So it still gets a lot of play too. Another reason why. Is because it's only two minutes long, two mm. minutes flat. Oh, wow. And so, you know, when they're running into the news uh, portion of the show or something like that, they got to kill a couple of minutes. They can play that tune. But I've got a radio director right now who wants a copy because he says that's his go to tune when he's, you know, yeah. when he's just down there a couple of minutes and stuff like that because the tune's in and it's out. So they got a lot of play. Uh, I forget what else they I've got copies of Well, Jolene, it was interesting. Oh, you yeah, Jolene, yeah, yeah. 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 Interesting uh, that you but, wrote a song uh, called Jolene. Yeah, I think that was before Dolly's, but I forget. Yeah. Anyway, um, they, it got played, but uh, it charted, but uh, modestly charted. Yeah. Nothing, not, Canada Cup near, I think it was top five. Right. Pretty well across Canada. This, uh, I, don't, I don't remember. I quit watching the charts. Well, that's the thing, right? And, and of course, the record company. So, so what happened after the second record? Did the the record company? That was it. Oh, I was supposed to be a two record deal, but my management, who made me ask me to sign with them, said, "No, we're not going to make a second record." Oh. At that point, uh, Finkelstein quit and just decided he wanted to uh, manage Bruce, and I stayed with Bernie Feeder, the other side of the team, for a couple of years. But nothing happened. Although he, he created a couple of pretty good opportunities for me. I ended up uh, working with Jeff Beck because, uh, uh, well, because my introduction to uh, Bob Ezrin, I would say that's more Ezrin's doing than uh, Fiedler's. But, you know, Fiedler got me a couple of opportunities and, uh, you know, they panned out. I produced a couple of records, produced a nylon Christmas record and produced uh, something for Remember the Boomtown Rats and uh, did some something for a band called the Bobcats, although they changed their name to... Yeah, so, you know, I, I was working away, but by that time I had a really strong uh, connection with the television industry. Plus, I started doing jingles. I was working every week, <clears throat> either singing or writing a jingle or playing yeah. on it or something, right? You were based out of Toronto or Winnipeg? Oh, yeah, I moved to Toronto in 83. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, that's what I thought. That, that was my big, uh, I guess, similarity to moving to L.A. I decided I should move to Toronto yeah. to further my career, which I did, but just in jingles and shit. 
So then, yeah. So you got into after the True North deal went away, and you, of course, how many times can you go back and forth across Canada too, right? Unless you get your teeth into something. Yeah, so, you know. Yeah, no, there wasn't be a whole lot of touring. Yeah, so the rest of the band stayed in Winnipeg. I just moved to Toronto on my own. Okay. And uh, well, by that time, uh, uh, Susan, one of the singers in the band, had a family, a couple of kids. Uh, we were kind of old for that stuff, so. <laughs> Well, the yeah, touring. So I, anyways, I moved to Toronto and I ended up when I ran on a royalty money. I just started singing and writing jingles because I got to You got to eat, right? Yeah. Well, that's lots of guys got into that, and you know, out in Vancouver too. I talked to uh, um, uh, Howie Vickers from the Collectors and stuff, and that's what he did. He quit in '69 and came out to Vancouver and worked for a long time. And and uh, so you were in Toronto. What studio were you working out of? Uh, a mostly of a place called Sounds Interchange. Yeah. When I worked on the Alice Cooper record, I was uh, working in a couple of studios north of there. Cool. Uh, yeah, tell me about that. What what was the deal with that? You, how did how did you get hooked up with Alice Cooper? Oh, uh, Bob Ezra knew I could write, so uh, he he got me up. Me and Bob started writing some stuff for uh, for Alice for his, He owed one more uh, one more record of Warner Brothers. Oh, okay. So uh, I went up to Bob's place and we talked away and we started writing some tunes for Alice. We had the, one of the first samplers called a Fairlight. Yeah, remember? We just started writing. We got along good. And then Alice was uh, pretty well drunk all the time. But he's, you know, he's a very uh, congenial drunk. Yeah. But he, he was, you know, from morning to night, he had a glass in his hand. And uh, yeah. then uh, Bob, oh, what the hell, so the Wagner came up. And uh, so we made a record. That yeah. was it. We just uh, started at the Clatoos, uh studio, but I forget what it was called. I call it Farley Mullet Studios because it's very rustic. Yeah. And then uh, we moved over to, God, Inception, no, not Inception Sound. I'll, I'll remember later, I'll, yeah. or I won't. And mm. uh, so we made that record over the course of was, about uh, maybe a couple of months. It's called Dada. Was that it was okay. It was, it, was, you know, it was a little weird, but yeah. uh, we, we made some pretty good tunes. It's a pretty good record. Yeah, that was in Alice's uh, alcohol phase. He's all cleaned up now. He's been... Yeah, yeah, he's living. doing great now. Yeah, no, good. Well, that's cool. And then, uh, yeah, well, interesting that you were able to sort of morph from that into doing jingles and, and doing some production for other people and stuff too. I mean, that's still a cool part of the biz and you still got to play, right? Did you play on a lot of that stuff? Yeah, yeah, oh, of course. Played yeah. it and sang it. Yeah, good. And uh, yeah, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. A lot, and, a lot of very talented people, very funny people in the business too. So yeah. I enjoyed my association with them as well. Yeah, very cool. And then, yeah, I watched the video. So so the CBC video you were talking about, that was at the St. Vital, right? In in Winnipeg? Yeah. And, yep. and then you had a six-piece yes, six band. So there was two of them. The first one, you had the first guitar player. The second one, Danny's on that show. No, Danny's on the first. Paul O'Neill is on the second. On this, okay, I got them mixed uh, up. The then. TV shows uh, involve, I think, both Danny and Paul. Okay, one way or another. And uh, anything I've done, I've gone back, did a couple of uh, casino gigs and a couple of benefits or something like that. And both Danny and, and Paul play on. Yeah, I did. I did see that actually. Yes, I watched those. But the the ones from 1980, man. I mean, that was the band was just. Um, you know, you guys were obviously hungry and, and kind of on fire and just doing your thing. And yeah, there's a crowd. been working six nights a week, so we were in game shape. Man. Yeah, and the, the female singers were super good. I mean. Yep, very, they, very good. And well, at one point, she's singing along with the guitar line, which is super cool. I can't remember. Which what, one was that? It was, I can't but remember. They what, all sing along with the Pantatus. They all sing along with that guitar line. Because I could hear a harmony, and I'm thinking, well, that's the singer. She's singing along to the guitar line that he's playing. Yeah. Yeah. They're very, very good. Very, yeah. very, 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 very good. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> so, and then, uh, yeah, the other one, the, the, the bass player, funky and cool. And the, just, and then you did by and by the acapella part. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, thanks. I'm glad you, uh, glad you heard it. I'm, um, I'm happy if you enjoyed it. That's great. Well, I did. And I would encourage our listeners, like, like if you haven't uh, listened to Graham Shaw or the uh, Sincere Serenaders, it's well worth watching. Those two was just cool in itself. And there's a bunch of other stuff on there too. So, Yeah, shitload on YouTube. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah. No, that's cool. So then, uh, so I was going to ask you about that too. Did you, did you chart all that stuff out and then memorize it or did it kind of morph from playing all the time? Uh, we never charted anything. No? Okay. Uh, 
nah, it was all your, we all played by ear and we just kept playing it and playing it and playing it and then it all morphed. That was uh, pretty, uh, I was uh, arranged stuff uh, with, I wouldn't call it a heavy hand, but a fairly firm hand. Well, and then, you know, once everybody knew their basic part, you know, their A's, E's, I's, O's, U's, and uh, Y's, and uh, then just playing it night after night, it would evolve and everybody would learn, right. you know, where they could step out, where they could be quiet. And uh, the dynamics of the band were great. And we had a whole lot of air in the arrangements too. So, yeah. you know, sometimes nobody would play. But there was also lots of precise parts and where you're doing Very precise. doubling parts and guitar and keys. Yeah, all, and that, all that stuff was pretty well proscribed, prescribed, I mean. Okay. And, uh, but, you know, once that happened, then you could start coloring outside the lines once you knew where the lines were. Yeah, yeah. exactly. No, it was cool. I could, I could see it wasn't a jam. It was obviously constructed, you know. In, no, no in, we were not the great for so yeah, exactly. It's a, no, so that was cool. And then, uh, so you got to be part of Tears Are Not Enough too. I see. In 1985, how cool was yeah, that? I'm back there somewhere with a couple of girlfriends of mine. And interesting story about that. Uh, what's um, what's uh, Bruce Allen was uh, putting it together, and I was sitting up with Bernie Fiedler, my manager, in his place in Toronto, and uh, he and Bruce uh, Allen were talking about uh, who they should have on it. And I was with a great singer named Sharon Lee Williams. She was uh, my date that night over at Bernie's. And she said, there's no black people in this thing. And uh, we went, son of a gun, you're right. <laughs> and uh, so we got on the phone with Alan. And that's why, uh, well, Dan Hill didn't say it at the time that he was black. Or, no. you know, black. And uh, so then we got uh, Liberty Silver in and Oscar Peterson was there and, uh, Wayne St. John, uh, yeah. Sharon Lee was there, and my girlfriend at the time, Kalina Phillips, was there. And, hmm. uh, it made a lot more sense. You know, we're doing it for like uh, famine and stuff. So, uh, Sharon Lee had a very big hand in, in the uh, the makeup of that group of singers. Oh, cool. And then David Foster was producing that, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Leave your ego at the door. Yeah, well, there you go. There was lots of stars in the room there, but it was cool that you got to be part of it. I mean, that must have been a neat. Yeah, it was thing. good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was it was fun. It was a great hang. We <laughs> went over to the Montreal Bistro, which is a bar close to the. We did have Manta Sound, which is just up the street from Sounds Interchange where I worked. I used to do a fair amount of jingles at Manta as well, and uh, that's all down on Adelaide Street. And uh, yeah, then we all went over to this restaurant, which is kind of local for all the musicians and. Uh, a lot of famous people are just hanging. I was quite delightful. Yeah, cool. So, but so your life must have changed. Like after you finished with the record deals and the touring and stuff, then how much live stuff did you do after that? You were mostly studio very guy. Little, very little. I okay. do a little thing here and there. I still have a little bit of celebrity status. You know, telethons, this kind of thing, that kind of thing. I, I never, I didn't. I'm not. I don't really crave the spotlight. I go back to Winnipeg, do some stuff every once in a while if the money was right and uh, <clears throat> sit in with some people. I did a fair amount of that sitting in okay. and I enjoyed that. But, yeah. You know, I, I more enjoy being a side man than a front man anyway. Yeah, I guess. And, and, uh, yeah, it's changed a great deal. But I was, you know, when you're in the studio like three, four times a week, sometimes the sessions start at eight in the morning. So it's, you know, it's yeah. a job. And you gotta have your shit together. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, you know, you you're gonna go back on the road and sell tickets and start traipsing all over the place. I guess once you've got a comfortable life in your studio, then that becomes your sort of center of reality. I guess. Yeah, yeah, it is, and I, I liked it. I yeah. liked all the friends I made yeah. doing that. And the money was fab. Bought myself a little house and bought mm. myself another house. Nice. And which is a good move in, the, in Toronto in the early 80s, let me tell you. But Well, yes, and uh, a lot of guys, a lot of uh, people I know uh, either put it up their nose or just lived the rock and roll lifestyle and, uh, and, and ended you up. You can't a house up your nose, man. No, and the thing is, a lot of guys ended yeah, up with I'm very lucky in yeah. that regard. It was a lot of fun. Too. Well, you'd have to be smart about it too because a lot of guys ended up with nothing and they should have had lots. So. Yeah, that's a shame. Um, and then well, I saw you did the... Uh, the bitter pill um live concert yeah, in yeah. 2011 that was in winnipeg right yep yep uh for uh bill merritt, for who, bill merritt uh, yep. i played with uh for a lot of years with a fellow named rick newfeld and i was a member of prairie dog so was gord the drummer the guy that you like okay yeah yeah bill got uh tumor mm. and uh so we all got together just 
you know, to make some money for him to get by on him and his yeah. wife Lucy. And uh, that was fun. Well, good for you. A lot you of for great doing players that. there. A lot of lot of great folks there. Yeah, good for you for doing that. I mean, it's a, you know when life goes on too. Like you're you're past the sort of star search kind of part of your life, and you're just looking at the people and your friends, and life goes on, right? You're all a bit older and looking. Oh, at I them. wouldn't have missed it though. That was a, what a great party that was. All of my cartoon pals were there. It was just great. Oh, cool. We had three or four yeah. really good bands that played back in the days where the Serenaders were playing. It yeah. was a great reunion. It was just very very fun. And then we did in- the same thing. After Bill Merritt, who was the subject of that, beneficiary of that thing, when he passed away, we had a big wake and everybody came back and did it again. And that would have been the 2014 one, right? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah I did see that Man, too. eight years ago. Yeah. Geez. Seems longer and it seems shorter. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, what was the deal with that uh, song, Take No Comfort? Like there's a video of you and then there's a choir and stuff. That is exceptionally good. Oh, that was uh, that was a telethon. Um uh, uh, Easter Seals Telethon, and okay. uh, I found that one by chance. I didn't even know it existed. All those people in the choir are all jingle singers and session singers I work with. Yeah, they're great. And, oh well, you got the top of the line there. Those yeah. people, you know, uh, you've heard of a lot of them. I won't go through all the names, but they're all you know the top end jingle singers, right? Yeah. And we'd all get together and do the Easter Seals Telethon. Jack Lenz was the musical director. He just hire all the guys that were any good, right? And so I got to do my little tune, and they were all singing it. And, uh, made me feel real good. Sounded great, didn't it? Oh, it's excellent. I mean, I, I put like, I make notes when I'm going through everything, and I just put excellent beside it, because it was a great song, too. Is that your song? You wrote that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. great song. Yeah, I, yeah. I, some religious group uh, said they would do it, and they would pay me a bunch of money if I would change the lyric to, will you take no comfort from his love? And I couldn't do it. Well, uh, I got yelled at by my management like crazy because they were getting 25% of my action. And they were offered a lot of money, but I couldn't do it. I'm I'm not really big on organized religion. Well, it's your song. It's your prerogative, right? But uh, so yeah, what, yeah. Oh, no, they, they couldn't make me do it. Yeah. And so what year was that, though? Because there was no year on there. Oh, the... The, the take no comfort. I would expect... I think... Shit, 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 shit. Maybe 85, 86, 87. I guess around there. Well, it wasn't recent. No, 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 no. Those are all, that's all right in the middle of doing jingles, which is, I did jingles from like maybe 86 till maybe 93. Well, it struck me because that's a, that's a strong tune. I thought, well, there's, there's a, that should be a ballad that everybody should hear. Uh, yeah, it's a good uh, a friend of mine, uh, the little sister of the blonde lady, Susan uh, Lethbridge, who sang in the Serenaders, is putting it on her record that she's making right now. But oh, cool. That's about the first cover I've seen uh, of it. Anyways, thanks. I'm glad you liked the tune. It's pretty well, good I, tune. Again, there was a steel guitar on there. Just really good feel, too, right? Like, you know, sometimes you get a good song that's got a good melody, but it's not really put forth in the right way. And I thought with the choir and yeah, the steel guitar. Yeah, this guitars. is pretty good. Also, all the top-end players, right? There's Ron yeah. Dan on steel guitar. You know, all these guys are top session players. Right? Really so, good. Yeah, yeah. No, it comes across real well, and your voice sounds good. And the, like I said, the good melody. That's a problem with songwriting nowadays. I don't know if you notice that or not, but the melodies. There's just not a lot of strong melodies, a lot of monotone stuff and... I don't know, just not that good. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, there's some good stuff out there, but you got to weed through a whole lot of uh, Lego. Well, you got to search for the melodies, right? I mean, that people ask, well, why were the Beatles so good? Well, they wrote melodies that will never be, you know, duplicated, right? Yeah. But so. I don't want to go too far in that direction. Or I'm going to start like the old man pounding his cane. <laughs> yeah, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> It'd be the dad on The Simpsons. <laughs> Yeah, man, shakes hand at cloud, shakes fist at cloud. <laughs> exactly, that's funny. And then I saw your uh, your Rawshaw thing where you did the, the the video of you just driving and listening to the CD. I didn't do that. No, so well, somebody did it. Somebody did it. I, I think I never watched the whole thing because oh. I know the album by by part yeah, by yeah. heart. But uh, yeah, somebody did that. He just drove for the. Oh yeah, kind of funny. Well, I thought I thought that you had a hand in that or something, and I no, thought, oh, no, oh interesting. Just, I never even watched. I just watched a little bit. It starts with face on straight, and you're looking through a windshield. I wonder if I still got it. Maybe I should look that up. Is well, it any good? Well, it doesn't do anything. It's just a driving. It's just the same. 
all the way through. Okay, good. <laughs> just on I a road trip. I'll go do that when I go to Blanham. I'll just put the CD in and, and drive. I'll have that very same experience. He put his dash cam on. I mean, I know those, like it's Trans-Canada Highway. I've driven everywhere. I've got a, millions of miles I've driven. So I, I, it's just like driving on a road trip, right? So. Yeah. Oh, Indian head. What a treat. <laughs> so that was, uh, but that was cool. So you did that album in 2008. You just kind of put together an album and, and put it out independently. Yeah, that, that's all recordings I've done in my basement, basically. Okay. And uh, so I put them all together, cleaned them up a little bit, went to Winnipeg, did it with my friend Norm Dugas, and uh, just hacked it together, made a thousand copies. Well, neat. It's it's very reflective. It seems like it like there's a lot of reflective songs, lots of ballads. I think half the album is ballads, right? Maybe. I've never really counted in that regard. Yeah, it's, but that's just me writing songs to my belly button, you know. And uh, so do you play most of the parts? Are you doing the acoustic All picking the parts, and stuff? I, I think the blues tune, Debbie Ray, we've got uh, Asher Horowitz playing guitar on that. And uh, what else? That's not. That's it. The rest is me. Well, there's a fretless bass in there too. You playing that's that? Me. That's that's uh, synthesized. Oh, was it? Yep. The drums oh. are synthesized. Uh, no, the, all the rest is me except for Asher on the... Uh, Okay, well, I was wondering because the the fretless part sounds good, and it yeah. usually, usually, unless you're a good fretless player, it sounds sour. Oh well, so, thank you. No, that's this is me diddling away. You know, pitch band. So, but you played it on a synth, or did you actually play a fretless? Yeah, synth. yeah. okay. Synth. No synth. I got you. Yeah. No, no, that's cool. I I love fretless. I've used it in a few tunes. Yeah, me too. With action. Yeah, if I'm I'm working. I'm doing. I'm working on a new album now. Oh, cool. And uh, the engineer is also the bass player, a guy named Don Benedictson. He's fab. And you're back in Ontario, right? You're in... Yeah, no, in Winnipeg, back in Winnipeg. Oh, you're living in Winnipeg now? No, no, I live in uh, I live in Ontario, but I go okay. back to Winnipeg. I got you, yeah. My favorite players are out there, right? Still, some people stayed in Winnipeg, eh? Wow. Oh, well, uh, let me think. No, <laughs> Susan's in... Uh, Atlanta's still in Winnipeg. Gary, yeah. uh, rest in peace, is in heaven. Uh, Danny is in Vancouver. Yep. Gordon's in Penticton. Susan's in Flimflon. Atlanta's yep. still in Winnipeg, and that's it. You going to use any of those players on your new stuff? Uh, strangely enough, no. It's uh, it just came down to all of a sudden. You know, the offer went out. Some yep. guys aren't in town. Paul decided he didn't want to do it. He was doing something else, and so I, I got a fellow named Lori McKenzie who played with the Guess Who, the subsequent Guess Who, the oh, okay. The guess who, uh, whatever it's called, the, the, the cover band, as Burton refers to them, right? The cover band. <laughs> and, uh, great drummer named uh, Danny uh, Roy and uh, hmm. Don Benedictson on bass. Just a little uh, four of us, and uh, Jennifer Hansen singing some backup. She's the one that's going to do that. Take no comfort too. No oh, cool. Yeah, so just yeah. Winnipeg guys. I'm going to get some more peg guys to work on. It's fun. Yeah. Oh, cool. And the studio's out of town, a little town called Rose Isle. So we just go out there and stay out there for three or four days. Oh, nice. A pink kind of situation. So what I noticed too about the Raw Shaw, like you're, uh, you, you got a kind of like on the songs When I'm With You, and so you got a kind of a Ray Charles flavor in your voice. You know, like you're, yeah. you're really good at, um, it's, it's, it's intense, but it's relaxed. Like you're very precise in your playing, but it's very relaxed. Like you do the half talking, half singing lyrics sometimes. And then, yeah. So well, maybe I learned that from uh, one of the best vocal performances I ever heard is Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. He said, mm. I can't sing. So he just talks. You every once in a while throw a little hint of melody in, and then he'll talk the rest of it. Right? So, you know, if I'm anywhere close to Rex Harrison's <laughs> performance quality. I'm thrilled. Well, the reason I, that strikes me is because some guys, they try to be so perfect and it's so perfect that they suck the life out of it. It's it's like manufactured song, right? That's never going to be me, man. <laughs> well, you you got I that. I my imperfections. Yes, well, but the music's precise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, right? thanks, I guess. Like, like, well, I mean, I'm saying like the the, the fretless part isn't sour. The, there's no there's no sort of imprecision in the music. It's it's relaxed but yeah, intense. Well, I like it to be I like it to be a tune. Some guys yeah. can do that, and it's fascinating, but yeah. uh, it's just not my style. Yeah, the Rolling Stones. Uh, we always make the joke about well, I'm gonna I'm gonna play a Rolling Stones song. I got to put my guitar out of tune. Give me a second here. <laughs> well, I'm gonna sing like Neil Young. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. So I'm always curious when I talk to people about their music career. Like when you set out, did you have like a plan or a goal, or was, was it just no, sort of take it as it goes? No, 
Yeah, you played as it played by ear, man. Yeah, zero plan. I stuck to my strengths, man. No clue what was what I was going to do. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because because guys like Brian Adams, I mean, that he was very famous when he came out of Vancouver because he had an absolute plan. Like he knew exactly what he was going to do, and he went down to Bruce Allen's office and said, "This is what I'm doing." And wow. then other guys are like, "Yeah, whatever. We'll see." You know. I'm I'm that guy. I'm like I, my entire sales technique consists of answering the phone. <laughs> there you go. And I see on your website you work well with other employees. <laughs> like, that's it. That's a good. That's one. all I gotta say. <laughs> and so, so what sacrifices did you have to make along the way? Like, did you sacrifice? Oh, I, I never really think of that. Um, no, no, I don't. Um, I really think I indulge myself. I don't. No, I don't, I don't see it as no, none, none that I can think of. Well, I wonder because they're, they're... Had I, you know, had I not been in the music, would I have gotten married? Yeah, they had kids. Don't know. I don't. I certainly said, "Well, it's my career, or the old lady and the kids." Never said that. Right. Never came to that. Right. So yeah. I would have to say a great big none. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I think I had it so easy. Yeah. I got off so lucky. Sacrifices doesn't even come into it. Well, yeah, that's a good point. And you don't see the, you don't never see the path you don't take. So you just live the path you're on and yeah. make the best of that, right? Well, if I'd have stayed with CPR, I kind of would have, probably would have been maybe a vice president or something like that. <laughs> but you wouldn't have got to play music then as much. Ah. Yeah. yeah. No. Well, it's Man, funny. Was, was no. Well, I had a friend who, who was a train engineer and he said I, I can't quit the money's too good i have a five kids to feed like I, i'd love to do something else but i can't yeah train engineer is pretty good gig a couple of very talented guys i worked with in winnipeg yeah i learned how to i learned a lot about singing from them are both medical doctors in texas now hmm. they wow. quit doing music and they both had one of them was a fantastic singer just a fabulous singer and he just went he, he's a doctor in texas Hmm. Guitar player, also a very talented guy, good singer. He invented something. He's a multimillionaire now. We oh, just, wow. they, some guys just got out. Some guys just made that choice. Yeah. I was just most comfortable making music. That's all. Yeah, well, that's you got to you got to find what hap makes you happy, right? What feeds your soul yeah, yeah. And, and what you're comfortable doing. Then you don't feel like yeah. a fraud. You know, I, I didn't want to do anything else. I mean, I've made a good living on the West Coast. I just didn't like touring. Did you? Did you like touring or? Oh well, you know, we had a pretty good band, and the women kept us sane. And, uh, yeah. Uh, so we had a good, we made the best of it. We had a pretty good time. You yeah. know, we got nuts. And uh, so we did pretty well. Uh, yeah, they're very happy memories of it. And every time we went out, it was good. Even though, you know, some of the gigs were pretty bleak and some of the miles were pretty long. Oh, yeah. The money wasn't great. But we toured Canada, say, opening up for Dr. Hook. That was fun. Then we did a couple of tours of our own, uh, small venues. That wasn't very much fun, but it was still fun because we were in great company, right? But after a while, it got old. Yeah, you couldn't imagine of having done that for another 20 years, right? No, not another five. Yeah, that's what got me is the touring. I just couldn't handle being away. And, of course, I had a wife and, and kids and stuff. There so you go. You know. Yeah. So I that just came means, back. Uh, you were happy. You love your wife. You went home. Yeah. Well, that's that's basically what happened. I I just came back to Vancouver and said, if I'm going to play music, I'm going to do it. Out of, you know, I'll still travel a bit, but I'm going to be around Vancouver mostly, and it worked out well for me. Good. Yeah. You made the right move. I think so, and I think she still loves yeah, me. So that's, there's a question: <laughs> what regrets? None. Yeah, I guess. But I, so so let me phrase it another way: if if there's something you could change, if there was a decision, like would you have stayed with Capital? Would you have changed something? Changed management? Oh, I probably would have stayed with Capital uh, because they were very enthusiastic. They have much bigger and more enthusiastic machine. Oh, I think uh, management just took it because they got to split whatever money was left over. We had a fifty thousand dollar budget. I did it for thirty seven five, so it was an easy six thousand bucks. I don't know, um, but. Uh, basically I wouldn't change the music that I made. I would change part of the way I made it. Uh, I don't think I would have made the record in LA. I was, uh, I had four or five producers addition to do the record. And I kind of interviewed with all of them. and went down to LA to visit with a bunch of producers. And I decided on the one that I thought would interfere the less, which I don't, the least, which I think was that good of an idea. But um, now nah, I, you know, I pretty well did what I did because I had to do it. So 
I can't go. But I'm not like Brian Adams. I didn't think they were planned meticulously. And say, how is this going to affect me? I just put my faith in the music, do the music, see if the people like it or not. Some people liked it. Some people didn't care. Well, it's, you're always fighting apathy, right? Every, that's everybody's challenge, right? People go, yeah, it's pretty good. You, you spend your life doing music and they go, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> well, that's, that's it. That's what you get, right? <laughs> but I was wondering about the producer when you mentioned that too, because I know some other people that I know got signed and went to the States and they were assigned a producer. The record company said, this oh, is no, your guy. They, they let me pick. Yeah. Uh, a couple of very funny guys uh, I should have gone with. Uh, or it would have been interesting to see what happened if I went with him. He, he co-wrote, jeez, uh, what tune was that? I, lo I love that tune, too. I'll think of it in a second. Chuck, oh, I can't even remember his name right now. He uh, produced an album I, I quite liked. Uh, you know, I'm gapping on all these names yeah. right now. Chuck somebody. A uh, New York guy. And I think they would have, uh, the sound in L.A. that uh, Kenny Edwards, the producer there, was doing was all very smooth, right? Mm -hmm. It's all very Jackson Brownish, and yeah. it's all whereas New York is a little edgier. He took some of the edge off uh, the Serenaders band. Uh, what I'll do is I'll send you some of the demos we made, which got us yeah. a deal with Capitol. Sure, I'd love. To. You know, it's funny you, you mentioned that. The band sounded like without the L.A. influence. It's funny you mentioned that because there was a real West Coast sound, and it was like the the early guys from Toto and Steely Dan and 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 like Mark the Jordan were uh, recording in the same studio. Uh, Ronstadt was in the same. Studio. There you go. Yeah, it was uh, all pretty smooth shit, yeah. and we were just. That's a little smoother than we were in real life. So, well, that's because Mark Jordan went down there to record Survival, right? And uh, living in Marina Del Rey and stuff. And that was that exact sound, too, because he had the guys basically from Boss Gags and in and, and that sort of flavor. That's a good record, though. I like that record. I know Mark, uh, he's, you know, moved in the same circles I did. Excellent. Throughout. Really good. But then look what happened to him. He got, he got dropped almost immediately. Within two years, he's starving. He goes down there as a star you know first class treatment and within he said within two years he was starving yeah but then he landed a couple of kid landed two with rod stewart yeah well, he's and good he, he, nice he came out of it good but he uh yeah he's, he's fine i like his tunes too i'm a bit of a fan of his, oh yeah gotta say and and the, the amount of tunes like his catalog is huge i couldn't even go through it all there was so much did you talk to him i did yeah i, I interviewed him last year about a year ago yeah how'd it go Really good. Yeah, he was really engaging, really, really impressive guy. But his catalog and his his accomplishments, he's been nonstop for 40, over 40 years. Yeah, hardworking man. Yeah. So, uh, but no, I had a real nice talk with him. And then I went and saw them because I talked to Ian Thomas too and Murray, of course, Murray McLaughlin. So, yeah, see, I know those lads very well. Yeah, no, they they were great. Do a lot of jingles with uh, Ian. Yeah, he said he did tons. He said he did hundreds of them. And, and oh yeah, he was he was a he was a go to guy. He was uh, I'd see him at least once a week in sessions. Oh good, good. Yeah, well, he was great to talk to. He we had a great conversation. Oh, he's funny, yeah. Yeah. Smart too and nice. So, and he said his brother Dave did some too. They did some together, like the Australian voices and stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was good too. Well, good. No, I always wonder because because when you make decisions at the time, you're you're sort of myopic you're like okay i'm gonna go here i'm gonna go there and then when you look back you go eh, shoot you know if i'd have done it a little differently things might have uh, worked out more the way i wanted but then by the same token you didn't want to get lost in the u.s market and tour around there endlessly probably either right? yeah, no no i don't look back with any regret at all yeah. you know i got hindsight of course and i can go what i wonder there's not a lot of regret involved in the least. Yeah, good for you. No, that, that's a good way to live. And what, what's your bucket list? Like, what do you got left to do? Are you going to do another album? Well, I'm doing this other CD. Uh, it got uh, kind of short-circuited because of the uh, Cootie 19. Yeah. So I'll be going and finishing that up. And that's, you know, just about ready to rock. Nice. And, uh, you know, I haven't got any big machine or big uh, earth-moving plans with shaking plans to uh, market it. But it'll maybe I'll send it to CBC or something. <laughs> and uh, just I'm just doing it. You know, I got to get the music, the songs out of my system. That's my nature. Not even oriented in terms of being a star or making a whole lot of money. But I got to do it. Yeah, and no, so, good, good that, for you. That's my next big move, man. Yeah. That and, uh, once the uh, say we don't get nuked in the uh, COVID lifts, uh, yeah. do some traveling. Like traveling music or just traveling just no, to... No, no, just to go somewhere. Well, good. Yeah, that's right. We've been locked up for a while. Well, I was going to say a, a couple of things. I talked to Christopher Ward. He did the same thing. He just wanted to do an album of his tunes, and he just did them and put it out and, and see what happens. Yeah. 
And the other thing is there's a, there's a radio station in Philadelphia, a good friend of mine, he's involved with Thor. Remember Thor, Muscle Rock? from the, Yeah, yeah, I did yeah. a Peter Zosky show. He was on the night before. And yeah. uh, Donald Sutherland threw a fit because he didn't want to be on a show with something cheap like Thor, who was a scream, I thought. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, so anyway, so he's still around and he's done a new album. And there's, apparently there's a radio station in Philadelphia that plays retro Canadian music artists. Ah. And they want the newer stuff from the retro artists. So they've been getting some play on that. That that sounds like my niche, doesn't it? Well, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. And so Thor's is doing that. And Kevin, my friend, Kevin Swain's been helping promote it. So, you know, there's still a market. Stay in touch with me. I'll let you know when I got something to to inflict on them. Yeah. I'd I'd love to hear it. So that's good. Well, no, I appreciate that. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share all this stuff, man. It's been super cool. Super cool to talk to you. Okay, Dynamite, thank you. Thank you for your time and attention, bro. Well, you got it. Many thanks to Graham Shaw for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his incredible experiences in the music business. And more information is available at shawbiz.com. And we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to uh, subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. So we invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.